York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Federal Reserve fail. Emergency rate cuts provide little assurance, though stock futures bounce today. Managing misinformation, Facebook giving the World Health Organization free advertising space on coronavirus, and Biden's back. The former vice president catapulting into frontrunner status. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move, it was certainly Super Tuesday for Joe Biden, Super Wednesday for me, of course, because I'm back with you. And it's also a super day for my mother, too. It's her birthday. Happy birthday, Mum. You are my superhero. Now, it's also a historic or heroic rise, let's call it that, 2% or more this hour for futures bouncing back from losses yesterday. Politics also, I have to say, uh, might be driving this. Joe Biden's strong showing in the primaries, far more market-friendly than a Bernie blowout. That would have added, I think, to uh, some of the jitters here that we're seeing more broadly, though. Volatility, once again, the name of the game. Volatile, again, yesterday, we did plummet a further 3% for the U.S. markets, despite the Fed's emergency half a point rate cut. My take on this, I think the Federal Reserve actually alarmed the market yesterday. Many investors took the look at that message, took a look at the rate cuts and said, hey, what do they know here that perhaps we don't? There's also, I think, the broader worry, and we've discussed it many times on this show, are rate cuts here limited in tackling a viral outbreak that we're seeing, especially when interest rates are so low? South Korea's actions argued, I think, that point for his best today. The central bank keeping rates steady once again, yet the government unveiled an emergency budget of near $10 billion to help support the economy. South Korean shares rose on the news. They were up some 2%. Chinese stocks overnight also making gains. That despite more awful services sector activity data. I think there's plenty of bad news and expectations in the price already here. We've also got a bounce going on over in the European session too. In some today for now we are green let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins us now Christine great to have you with us so the Federal Reserve despite the fact that the G7 said they weren't going to make any kind of coordinated measures they said we're not hanging around they cut rates and the market took fright what do we think of this I think you're exactly right that they hit a panic button they haven't hit since the days after the Lehman Brothers collapse, and that signaled something very big. The time before that, it was the 9-11 terrorist attack. So you're putting what's happening now with coronavirus, which is still very uncertain, on par with some very dangerous times uh, in American life. Now, look, for the economy, we are seeing disruptions, no question. In tourism, a lot of these uh, local communities are going to be hurt by the, you know, all these conferences that are canceled and travel around the country uh, that has been canceled and people working from home, but we don't know how deeply that will go. And and how will lower interest rates, how will lower interest rates kill a virus or ensure an effective government response or or affect a health crisis? You know, cutting rates is usually a tool for a more financial type crises, not necessarily a health crisis. So right away, you had investors saying, uh, we think the Fed panicked unnecessarily. Yeah, I agree with you. Do you think politics is also playing into this perhaps too? I mean, you look at the Super Tuesday results. Had yes. Bernie Sanders made a stronger showing here, then perhaps the market would have gone, whoa, we know some of his policies certainly aren't all that market friendly, but particularly compared to Biden here. Look, if Tuesday was a Fed flop, uh, Wednesday is a Biden bounce. And 
everyone I've talked to this morning said the moderate in the driver's seat for the Democratic Party is something Wall Street likes. Uh, Wall Street prefers Trump. Uh, Trump's policies have been great for Wall Street, right? Um, they prefer Trump, but they can live with a Joe Biden. Joe Biden from Delaware. Uh, he's uh, uh, He knows how credit card companies operate, right? He's somebody who knows about business, and he is seen as palatable, um, palatable to Wall Street, quite frankly. You know, Bernie Sanders was someone who Wall Street didn't want to see as president, but did want to see potentially as the Democratic nominee if it looked like Trump could beat him. So there's a, a changing narrative, a morphing narrative. And look, a lot can change. You've got debates. You've got more primary states to go here. There's a lot of missteps that can happen and a lot of jockeying for the front position here that could still happen. But it's a reminder, Julia, that election year markets are very unpredictable and surprises happen all the time. Yes, absolutely. And what did you say? Fed flop to Biden bounce. I like it. Flops better than fail, I think, here. There's, a, <laughs> there's still room to move. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Nice to see you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with the latest on the coronavirus outbreak, because Italy has announced two weeks of closures of schools and colleges. This, of course, amid the ongoing global battle to contain the outbreak. The World Health Organization has warned of worldwide medical equipment shortages. We have China reporting that 75 international arrivals into the country now have tested positive for the coronavirus. To South Korea, where reports of nearly 300 new cases appeared overnight, a total now of over 5,600. That remains the largest outbreak outside of China. In Iran, they're using tent hospitals as it runs out of beds. 8% of the country's lawmakers have tested positive for the virus, too. The infection is also reported to be spreading in Iran's jails. Now, those are the facts, of course. The problem is, where do you go for information? Is there a risk? And of course, there is that you get misinformation, particularly on social media. Well, Facebook is now trying to tackle that. They are giving free advertising space to the World Health Organization to try and tackle some of this information. Haddis Gold joins us now on this story. Haddis, this is a positive step. When I saw this, I thought this is a great idea. And you actually get a pop up because I've tried it directing you to official information from the World Health Organization. Yeah, Julia, that's right. This is a positive step forward. And actually, experts I've been talking to have lauded Facebook and what they're doing. They're essentially giving the organizations like the WHO as much free ad space as they want in order to try to get their message out there. And that's because there is a huge problem. This virus of misinformation, the experts are calling it an infodemic, is spreading almost faster than the coronavirus is spreading. It is so easy to stumble upon bad facts about where the virus com comes from, how it's spread, and even worse, even potentially more dangerous, it's potentially how to cure it. Everything from just drinking garlic water to even worse. So this is a good step by Facebook. And actually, I have been speaking with the uh, the person at the WHO who has been liaising directly with these tech companies about what they're doing and how sort of difficult it is to balance both the free speech, just the common flow of information on these websites with trying to make sure that the good information is getting out there. Take a listen. And a lot of the time, it's a very fine line between the freedom of speech and this misinformation. And technology companies are all promoting freedom of speech, which is fine. But a lot of them do have a policy which says that as soon as it uh, content is um, is dangerous to one of their users or danger to a human, then um, they would be happily to take it down. So we looked at it's basically finding what the tech company is willing to do and what uh, we need to get done and finding that sweet spot in the middle 
uh, of what we can actually work together on. But Julia, the problem is the WHO only has a small team that are working on this. Only actually three people are dedicated to watching social media and having that direct line to places like Facebook to flag it and take it down. But the problem is this misinformation is coming out at such a speed. Just this morning, I was on Instagram looking looking at coronavirus and I was stumbling across accounts that are not necessarily giving out the best information out there. It's sort of a whack-a-mole procedure, but at least there is some progress being made because as some people are saying, this is the first epidemic really having that's that's on a global scale that's in this sort of incredibly hyper-connected social media world. Julia? Absolutely. I, I believe you just said drinking garlic water was one of the suggestions. I mean, that's going to keep people away. I don't think that's going to help fight uh, coronavirus, quite frankly. And I don't really want to make a joke about something so serious, but some of it is completely laughable here. By far the better idea here, as good as it is to give free advertising space to the World Health Organization, is to try and lock down on some of these accounts that are fueling this misinformation. And whether we're talking about coronavirus or anything else, Haddad, you and I talk about this all the time. They need to get better at tackling the accounts that are providing the misinformation. And this is the challenge here. Anything else is a mere distraction. Right, and, that, and that's the danger here because there's people that are honestly just trying to get out information that they believe is correct, and there's other people who are trying to make money off of it, trying to sell these sort of herbal cures or something like that. Then, of course, you have the more traditional groups like the anti-vaxxers who are coming out already against any sort of coronavirus vaccine. Now, the WHO says it is, devel- it is working on with some tools with these social media companies, artificial intelligence that can help them track certain phrases or accounts that are often sort of signifiers for this bad information, but it is still, I have to tell I've been looking at this for the past few days. It is so easy to just stumble upon this bad information. And despite the good efforts, despite the links that they'll pop up next to the information to try to get you to click on other websites that take you to a good place, it is just way too easy to find bad information on the coronavirus online. And that is just too dangerous. Couldn't agree more. Hellas Gold, great to have you with us on that story. Thank you for that. All right, let's move on now to our next driver. Joe Biden is back. He won nine states in the Super Tuesday primaries as we're on the path, of course, to selecting a Democratic nominee for president. Bernie Sanders leads in the big prize of California. Jessica Dean joins us now from Los Angeles. Jessica, great to have you with us. A reinvigorated Joe Biden, it seems. But to the point about California, it's the delegate numbers that matter. Where are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders lying at this moment? Right. So right now we're still waiting on California's delegate numbers and and all of the results from here to be finalized. California is unique in the way that it counts its results. It usually takes days later because if you mail in your ballot and it's in by yesterday, you have until Friday for it to get there. So it can take days for them to really get to a final, final count. Uh, We see Bernie Sanders leading here, but Joe Biden uh, following close behind. Uh, And then if you look wider out at the the uh, the delegate numbers broadly, Joe Biden is now in first place. So what a difference a week makes, right? Uh, uh, it's just an incredible turn of events. It's unprecedented, the comeback that Joe Biden has had. Remember, after New Hampshire, people were declaring his candidacy dead. Uh, so he he keeps saying, I'm back. We go to these rallies. He says, I'm back. I'm alive. Uh, the campaign was really hoping that that big, significant win in South Carolina would give them the momentum to go into Super Tuesday and really capture and make the most of this moment. And but they didn't know until it actually happened if that would work out. So what did they do? They focused on uh, key 
districts within these Super Tuesday states that they knew were delegate rich. They looked for endorsements there. And then, of course, those big endorsements from his former rivals, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke. And again, they hoped that that would move the needle and that people would break late for Joe Biden. But until those results came in last night, Julia, we just had no way of knowing. It was such a short turnaround between Saturday and Tuesday. It was hard to be predictive of, of how that would shake out. But just a huge night for Joe Biden and certainly an incredibly energized Biden campaign. And one more thing I'll add, Julia, is the money issue. There is now millions of dollars flowing into Joe Biden's campaigns where they had once really, really struggled uh, with raising money. In fact, in some of these states that he actually won, they were not on the airwaves with any sort of advertising. And you're, you know that Michael Bloomberg was spending tens of millions of dollars in a lot of these states on ads. So it was an interesting comparison uh, that Joe Biden was able to win some of these states where he hadn't visited or been on the air uh, when others had spent a lot of time and money there. Absolutely. Critical question as well for Elizabeth Warren now. Less so, of course, yeah. for uh, Mike Bloomberg. And it's going to be interesting to see what these two do now as well. Jessica, great to have you with us. Thank you for that wrap up there, Jessica yeah. Dean. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. The U.S. has conducted an airstrike on Taliban fighters following attack on an Afghan checkpoint. This strike comes just hours after President Donald Trump says he spoke with a Taliban leader by phone, describing it as a good conversation, quote. And it hasn't even been a week since the U.S. and the Taliban agreed to work toward a peace deal. A major diplomatic spat is developing between Turkey and Greece after Turkey claimed Greek security forces fired live ammunition at migrants. Greece categorically denies this and says Turkey is fabricating and spreading fake news. The European Commission has adopted its first European Union-wide climate law, which aims to reach climate neutrality by 2050. The law comes as activist Greta Thunberg visits the European Parliament in Brussels, where she's due to meet the president later today. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up in the show, how Super Tuesday marked a super shift in the Democratic race for the nomination and breaking down Lego's strong earnings brick by brick, piece by piece. More to come. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. We continue to try and quantify the impact of the coronavirus outbreak on the global economy. But what is clear is the travel and tourism sector is well and truly on the front lines. Richard Quest investigates the likely impact. The travel industry has faced many shocks of different types before, but this is something different. The last time we've seen anything close to this was post 9-11. It's the range and scale of industry that's truly worrying. Think about it. It's more than just planes and trains. It's the hotels where we stay, the restaurants we dine at, the credit cards we use for expenses. Giant companies like Nestle and Unilever have restricted almost all business travel. And massive trade shows like Mobile World Congress have been cancelled, along with even travel trade shows such as ITB. It's creating a cascading threat to the travel industry and the millions of people who depend on it. If there's nobody traveling on planes, there's nobody staying in hotels. If no one's staying in hotels, no one's going to restaurants, no one's using taxi cabs, Ubers, chauffeured cars or anything else. Everything kind of stops and that's the problem. 
This is what the impact of coronavirus looks like on Chinese airspace. Busy routes disappeared altogether at the height of the outbreak as travellers stayed home. Now, major European and transatlantic routes are also being cancelled because of falling demand. All told, IATA says it will cost airlines more than $29 billion this year. It is not good. I'm talking to people who say that this is the worst crisis for airlines since at least uh, 2008 and, and maybe post 9-11. People right now don't want to travel. The cruise industry has been particularly hard hit. Last month, thousands of people were confined on board to cruise ships amid fears of spreading the virus. Coronavirus was detected on only one of the ships. There are fresh restrictions as companies deny boarding to passengers deemed at risk. Cruise line share prices have tumbled heavily. And some countries are turning ships away from ports that rely on the constant flow of tourists. So look at the effects on some of the major players across three areas. Cruise lines, Carnival, straight the way down. United Airlines, with all those Asian routes out of the West Coast, also a big faller. And the largest hotel group in the world, Marriott, have seen some very serious falls, down some 21%. This is a new twist. It's the black swan that landed on your lawn. Nobody ever wants the black swan showing up, but we had one show up. But, you know, the world is resilient. Humans are resilient. There's always a solution. It's just a matter of how much time is it going to take to find the solution that's necessary. The travel and tourism industry is huge. It's estimated 10% of the global workforce is in some way connected to travel and tourism. So with all its vulnerabilities, the industry is worried but well-practiced at dealing with crises. Richard Quest, CNN, New York. Now, as Richard was showing you there, some of these stocks have been incredibly beaten up, but they are bouncing in the session pre-market. Take a look at what we're seeing for some of these stocks. The carriers, they're all higher at this moment. You can see Delta, United, higher pre-market. Carnival, as he was showing you there as well, bouncing a little bit here, but nothing, of course, compared to the losses that we've seen over the past few weeks. What about more broadly? Futures still looking pretty good here overall. Stocks set to rise. Well, more than 2% right now for the Dow. This is a look pre-market once again, gaining back a lot of Tuesday's 3% losses if we can hold on to them. But we've seen huge swings in the Dow specifically, more than more of 1% or more in each of the past five sessions. The Dow could exit correction, actually, if we can hang on to these gains at the open this morning too. There's a lot going on. Mark Zandi joins us now. He's the chief economist at Moody's. Great to have you with us. Good to be with you. What do you make first of the Federal Reserve's move yesterday and the market's um, lacklustre, let's call it, response? Well, they did the right thing cutting rates. Uh, the execution left something to be desired. I mean, uh, clearly their intent was to lift confidence, Support. sentiment, <laughs> and it had the opposite effect, right? I mean, investors said, well, what's going on? Are they panicked? That was one thought. And I think the second thought was, well, now we're at a 1% federal funds rate target. That's the rate they control. So 1%, zero, that isn't too big a difference. So how much more room do they have to maneuver? So I think investors are um, a little bit nervous about the way they pulled this off. I, you know, if, if I were king for the day, I probably would have waited until the meeting 
when they would normally make a decision, that's only two weeks away. So Just to be able to say to people, look, we are going to take action. We are here. We stand ready to support, but we're not going to make a knee-jerk reaction, exactly. particularly in the hours after the G7 decided not to do anything on a, on a coordinated basis. Yeah, because you got Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, pretty much got what he wanted on the Friday before. Remember, he came out almost um, a few minutes before the market closed, and he said, look, you know, we stand to provide the support we need. And the market came back a thousand points, I think. So he did pretty much what he needed to do. He stabilized sentiment confidence. So I, I think I would have, but you know, this is a tough job, right? And judging sentiment, particularly in this market, given how people are thinking, I, you know, it's hard to gauge how, how they would respond. You were saying just a few days ago that you think the market's still underestimating the potential economic impact that the coronavirus can have. So there's two questions there. Do you still think that that's the case? And do rate cuts here at the margin have any impact beyond, as we've discussed, the signal and the sentiment rather than actually providing an economic boost? Well, I, I don't think the market has discounted a recession. So if this virus is as bad as the CDC says it's likely going to be, very disruptive, schools closed, that kind of thing, we probably, it's going to be pretty hard to avoid a recession. If we have a recession, we're going to go down another 10% on the S&P. You're saying we're 50-50 probability for U.S. Yeah, recession I, here. Yeah, I think odds are pretty high. Uh, again, you know, this thing can go in lots of different paths. There's a lot of, we, there's a lot of known unknowns. Uh, they're unknown. Yeah. So we'll have to see. But yeah, I think odds are pretty high. What's the path that leads us to recession? Is it, to your point, business activity subdued? a hit to jobs, a hit to consumer confidence, because it has been the consumer that's kept the U.S. economy as buoyant as it has been, particularly on a relative basis. Yeah, I, you know, this is going to be disruptive to the economy. The economy is going to slow, and we may not go into recession, but if we go into recession, you're right. It's going to be the consumer that takes us in. At the end of the day, a recession is really just a loss of faith, you know, faith that I'm going to have my job, faith that my nest egg isn't going to evaporate in front of me. Once you lose that faith, you kind of run for the bunker, that's a recession. When do we see that when do we see that playing out though in perhaps the job numbers? Because in the end we have to bring it back to fundamentals and wait and see what the data's telling us about economic activity. I think it's gonna show up pretty soon. Do you? Yeah, I mean it won't show up on Friday. Friday we get an employment number for February. That was for the middle of the month of February before the virus really was on our yes. minds. Uh, but it'll start showing up. If this is going to turn into a recession, it'll show up in initial claims for unemployment insurance. So someone gets laid off. Uh, the first thing you'll do is you go down to the unemployment insurance office, say, hey, I need some help. They cut you a check. We count the number of people who do that every single week, right. Thursday morning. So tomorrow morning it'll come out, so we should watch that very carefully. So if businesses start to get more and more nervous, we can track that data on a weekly basis, and that's never the, mind jobs. And that's when consumers lose faith, right? Because once unemployment starts to rise, they go, oh my goodness, and they start to pull back. and then businesses see that, then they become more cautious. And you can see how we can do this self-reinforcing vicious cycle. That's a recession. Yeah, Mark, stay there because we are going to continue this conversation once we've opened up the markets and seen what the price action looks like right now, as I've mentioned to you. We are looking like a stronger open to this Wednesday's trading session. A bounce back after 3% across the board losses yesterday. Volatility is the name of the game, and we keep saying this, but this is what we keep seeing. Right now, the Dow higher by some 2.3%. If we open open like this will be out of correction territory, at least for the first few moments of this trading session. Not willing to bet anymore at this stage. Stay with us. We've got you covered. Plenty more discussion to come. And Mark Zandi, of course. Stay with us. You're with CNN.
to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell this morning. Lots of uh, green faces, green for life and green markets as well. We have a bounce for U.S. stocks. All the major averages bouncing back after the 3% losses that we saw yesterday. The Fed's emergency half-point rate cut not giving any immediate relief to markets yesterday, as we've discussed, perhaps frightening them into what the Fed knows versus everyone else. But sentiment, I do think, is being helped today by Joe Biden's strong showing in the Super Tuesday voting yesterday and overnight. Also, some uh, solid U.S. jobs numbers are positive here. A stronger than expected 183,000 private sector jobs created in the United States last month, despite the negative coronavirus developments, though, of course, those developments have intensified since then. As uh, we've mentioned as well, U.S. Treasury yields remain under pressure. Yields hovering around that 1% level right now, near all-time lows. In fact, we've just tilted below. What about our global movers this morning in the stock market session? General Electric shares are higher despite warning that the coronavirus will impact results. It's warning that cash flow and earnings will come in weaker than expected in Q1. But it said sales at its troubled power division are looking up and it's keeping full year guidance intact. I think that perhaps is the key message for investors today. Campbell Soup also actually not opening up yet, so we'll have a look at what's going on with that one. But they did beat earnings expectations, and it's at raising full-year profit guidance. There we have it now. It's up 4%, as you can see. Meanwhile, shares of healthcare companies like United Health and CVS Health as well, rallying after Joe Biden's strong showing in Super, Studio, Super Tuesday. Get my teeth in gear. Biden's victories in key states slowing the advance of Bernie Sanders, who's promised universal healthcare at whatever cost, of course, if elected. Let's bring Mark Zandi back in. He's the chief economist at Moody's. Uh, do you think politics is playing into what we're seeing today for a bounce for the markets here? Yeah, I think yesterday's a super Tuesday. Say that fast three times. Super <laughs> no. Tuesday. Yeah, I think it probably played a role, right? Because uh, uh, I think Vice President Biden is the safe bet. I mean, the world is feels very unsafe. And I think uh, the electorate wants somebody who they you know feel confident in, not, not only because he's he's been there, done that, but he, just his temperament, you know, he's not going to blow anything up and things are blowing up all around us. So That's think, an interesting point yeah. to make. Do you think it played into, coronavirus played into voting to some degree yesterday too? Or oh, is I that, do. Do I you? Do. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, I think voters said, look, uh, you know, this is a time we're very troubled, very nervous, uh, personal health on the line. I want somebody who really knows what the heck they're doing. And you know, Vice President Biden has been there. He's, you know, he's on the front lines for lots of crises. And so I think they feel com more comfortable with him. You know, we've talked on this show before about the statistics of re-election for presidents and the unemployment rate between the midterms and the presidential election is absolutely critical. Just to circle back to the conversation we were having earlier and your relative concerns about the prospect of severe slowing of the U.S. economy, how quickly might it happen and will it play into voting in 2020? We've got what between now and November? Uh, relatively quickly. I mean, uh, underlying, you said 180 today, the ADP number, yes. that's juiced up by weather. We've had really warm weather, you know, in the U.S. January, February, got all juiced. That's going to come out of the numbers in the next couple of months. So the underlying rate of job growth distracting from these vagaries is about 125, 150. Mm. That's consistent with stable unemployment. But if you get below 100K per month on, you know, a couple, three months, unemployment will start to notch higher. And we could, by election day, you know, if things don't play out reasonably well, you know, closing in on 4%, which is still very low, but it's, it's the but change it in. It's the change yes. in that matters. 
particularly obviously in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. You know, it doesn't really matter what's from an electoral perspective. It doesn't matter what's going on in Kansas or Hawaii. You know, they're going to be RD no matter what's going on. But yeah, it's really it's those three those, states. Yes. Mark, fantastic to have you with us. Thank Thank you you. so much. Uh, Mark Zandi there, the Chief Economist at Moody's. All right, let's uh, bring you up to speed now on the the latest for Super Tuesday. Here is where we stand regarding delegates. A candidate needs 1,991 to win. And so far, you can see that Joe Biden is leading rival Bernie Sanders. What a comeback for Joe Biden. Originally the frontrunner, he then fell back in early states like Iowa and New Hampshire, only to surge since South Korea. For more, let's get some context. We're joined by Lan Hee Chen. He's the director of domestic policy studies at Stanford. University and he's joining us now from California. Lanhee Chen, whichever way you look at this, this is one heck of a comeback for Joe Biden. What do you make of it now? Well, no question. It was a uh, quite an incredible comeback. It was one that was unexpected. Uh, Joe Biden didn't even visit uh, some of the states that he won. And so I think what you're seeing uh, is the coalescing of this race on the Democratic side. You have Bernie Sanders, who was the uh, early front runner. Now you have Joe Biden that's coming back into the race. Uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders now are going to fight head to head. The question really becomes, can Joe Biden sustain the kind of effort and the kind of success he saw on the campaign trail in that last few days leading up to Super Tuesday. That will be the ultimate test here over the next several weeks. Do you think he can? Because he benefited even just in the last 24 hours with the likes of Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg stepping out, endorsements not just from them, but other big key Democratic players. The momentum can't be underestimated that he received just in the run into Super Tuesday. Do you believe that this can continue? I think it could. Now, the issue, of course, is going to be how many more endorsements are left. There are a few uh, big endorsements that still could come in for the vice president over the next few weeks. Uh, There's a televised debate coming up here uh, in the next few weeks. And then you've got a cluster of states next week, including Michigan and Missouri, followed the next week by states like Florida. So there are still a number of states where the vice president could do well, where demographically uh, the demographics suggest that he could do well. So it's really going to depend on uh, what happens here over the next few days. Can he parlay the momentum that we saw from last night into these next few days? Fundraising is going to be a big issue, Julia. He's going to need to raise money both from sort of traditional deep-pocketed Democratic donors, but also demonstrate some ability to to, uh, to raise money with lower-dollar donors, which Bernie Sanders has been very successful at so far. Yeah, the grassroots fundraising for Bernie Sanders here, so critical. What do you make? Because for him, what do you make of his performance last night? It was a weaker than performance, weaker than expected performance, but California is king in terms of delegates. When we get those numbers out, he could, on a pure delicate basis, still be leading Joe Biden as we push on from here. What about his momentum? Yeah, I mean, this is the amazing thing about California. Over 400 delegates at stake uh, here in California. Certainly the case that Bernie Sanders could come out of this still with more overall delegates when the night is completely counted than Joe Biden. And I think part of that goes to the 
to the fact that um, you have in California a state the demographics of which in many parts of the state suited Bernie Sanders well. You had a younger population. The Latino vote really came out big for Bernie Sanders. But you've got to be disappointed if you're Bernie Sanders in the Bernie Sanders campaign to lose states like Oklahoma, for example, which he won in 2016, and then to underperform in Texas, where Joe Biden winning there really was a shock to a lot of people. Uh, and so we'll have to see what happens with the Bernie Sanders campaign. But there's no question they're disappointed, even though they still could come out of last night with a delegate lead. Yeah, there's two questions now for me. How swiftly do Elizabeth Warren and Mike Bloomberg decide, look, okay, we've gone as far as we can go. One clearly will run out of money and that will be a problem. One won't. And then the bigger question for me, I think, if Joe Biden ultimately becomes the Democratic nominee, what happens to those that have put their support behind Bernie Sanders, do they sulk at home and actually don't go out to vote? Because it does feel like those voters then will be critical when Joe Biden goes head to head against President Trump, if indeed that's what happens. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. So to the first question about Warren and Bloomberg, there is no pathway for Elizabeth Warren. There is no pathway for Michael Bloomberg. I'm sure the Bloomberg campaign is enjoying their big win in American Samoa last night. But clearly there is no pathway for Mike Bloomberg. Uh, and, and, you know, for Warren as well, I think they're going to have to get out of this race. Uh, in terms of what it means for the Sanders voters if Biden wins, uh, look, I think by and large, Democratic voters are so focused on beating Donald Trump that a fair number of those voters, I would dare say a vast majority of those Sanders voters, I think do turn out for Joe Biden. But really, in a race that's going to be close, every vote counts, every voter counts. And so it's going to be up to Bernie Sanders, frankly, if he loses to say, look, we didn't win here, but let's get behind the person who can beat Donald Trump. And it's going to be entirely up to him to do that. So again, as this race evolves, we'll see the posture he takes. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Lani Chen, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, building on success, one brick at a time. Look, here's what I made earlier. No, I didn't. Someone else did. I would not be capable of making this. But anyway, the Lego CEO is going to be on after the show talking about earnings and what's going on in China too, an important area for them. Stay with us. That's after this. first move lego the toy everyone grew up with is building on some strong earnings the plastic toys maker reporting top and bottom line growth in 2019 global consumer sales rising by 5.6 percent compared to 2018 full-year revenues up six percent and operating profits grew one percent leaving a net profit of just over 1.2 billion dollars lego disney princess themes also performed strongly along with its marvel adventures and harry potter tie-ups this year, the company is planning an aggressive expansion into China with 80 stores in 20 cities. Nils Christensen is LEGO CEO and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you with us. Lots to discuss here, but as I mentioned there, you're seeing pretty solid growth, revenue growth all around the world. Talk us through how you're achieving it. Yeah, it's, uh, it is true. We're very happy with that, the fact that we are we actually growing in an industry that uh, has a quite a difficult time right now. We've grown in all major markets around the, grow around the world and we've taken markets here also in all major markets. So, so we're really happy uh, with that development. 
Can I talk specifically to you about China? Because I mentioned there your expansion plans, 80 further stores. I believe that would take you to 220 this year. In light of the coronavirus outbreak and the challenges we're seeing, have you adjusted your plans in any way? It is true what you say. I think in, in China we have seen strong double-digit growth in, uh, in 2019 and we did open another 80 legal branded stores around China as uh, did we actually really increase our presence also on e-commerce and online sales channels. And we're looking, as you say, in 2020 to open another 80 branded stores to really make sure we get the brand into more cities around China. So by the end of 2020 we would be in 50 cities with more than 220 stores. Now in terms of uh, coronavirus, our focus so far has really been been on the well-being and, and, and the safety of our employees. So we've been uh, acting along along all the guidelines and recommendations from local authorities uh, in China. And I must say, with the plans we have in place, I'm, I'm quite confident with the may, way we've been able to, to to handle it so far. We're in a good situation, but uh, but of course there's uncertainty to uh, to how it will go for the rest of the year. But but for now, we intend to uh, to stick to our plans of opening 80 stores in China also this year. I mean, protecting workers has to be um, the first, first and foremost in terms of your planning. I, I completely understand that. Have you managed to keep all your stores in China open or have there been closures? And I know you produce locally Mexico for, for U.S. products, China for Asia. H have you and will you see an impact as a result of, of what we've seen with the outbreak and the restrictions put in place on your supply chain? I think, uh, I think as, as you also point out, we are quite, we're quite uh, in a good position in that we have a flexible supply chain that, that uh, well, we have an opportunity also to, uh, to shift products around globally so we're not depending on a finished good product being done only in one place. Uh, we, we did have our factory in China. We have a big factory in China closed for a little longer than the Chinese New Year, but it is actually uh, ramping back up right now. And, uh, and as I said, we are in a, in a relatively good position on how we've been able to supply now, in terms of market, we're also benefiting from the fact that we are well represented uh, online uh, in China as are we uh, building our, our network of, uh, of legal branded stores. And, uh, and, and if the situation would be that people would be, see, we would see less traffic in stores and less, less uh, revenue in stores, then, uh, then there's a good chance that some of that would flow into the online sales channel where we would also be in a good situation. So uh, I would say so far, so good. It's too early to, uh, uh, to guess on the full year. That's an interesting point to make, though, about e-commerce. Have you already seen a, a pickup in e-commerce sales just in the past several weeks? It, it's hard to say because we are seeing growth in e-commerce all the time. We also saw growth right. in e-commerce uh, throughout uh, 2019. But we are actually well positioned to get that extra if, uh, if it would happen. But so far, uh, so far we are comfortable where we are. And uh, yes, there are some stores that are closed, but there's also many stores that are, are open. And we, we, we keep that going as with the uh, recommendations and guidelines we get also from authorities in China. So, uh, so I'm comfortable where we are right now. I want to talk to you about sustainability too because I do know you're making progress towards making um, all the bricks recyclable or recycled plastics um, by 2030. How are you progressing with that plan and is there any ability to perhaps move up that time horizon given how much people are talking about the need for, for brands and companies to focus more on sustainability? 
Now, it, it, it is a very important area for us. And as you know, we're investing a lot of money into that, actually trying to find materials that are not there today. They're not available today, but to find those that will live up to our, our quality standards and our safety standards. And we've given ourselves to 2030, which I think is already a pretty ambitious uh, timeline for that. But in the meantime, of course, we are working very hard on also uh, making sure that the circularity or the recyclability of our products is high. You know, Lego is made of plastic, but it's durable plastic. Uh, many of us have bricks at home that are 20 or 40 years old and they still work and they still fit the new bricks and they are often passed on from generation to generation. So in that sense, Lego bricks aren't just being, uh, being thrown out. They aren't ending up in ocean. So in, in that sense, it's more an issue also of making sure we have a good circular that the bricks are getting back into use. And for that reason, in the US already in, in 19, we actually launched this replay trial where we actually allow people to give or, or make it enable people to give back their bricks so that we can actually make sure they go further on to charity, to children in need. And that has been very successful. That's something we're actually looking here in 2020 and beyond to roll out to many more markets. Yeah, fantastic ideas. And, and your point, sustainability has many different avenues. Fantastic. Niels Christensen, great Thanks to have so. you with us. Thank you so much, the CEO of Lego there. We're going to take a break here on First Move, but coming up at a time when many supermarket shelves are low or empty of essentials like hand sanitizer, prices online are spiking and it's left some sellers rubbing their hands with glee. We've got an update. Stay with us. first move and just into CNN Lufthansa is to ground 150 jets in response to falling demand because of the coronavirus outbreak 125 short-haul aircraft and 25 long-haul jets will be taken out of service as the airline reduces the number of flights it comes as the International Air Transport Association reports the slowest air traffic growth in nearly a decade meanwhile here in New York and other cities around the world the coronavirus outbreak has meant hand sanitizer has suddenly become harder to come by. With supermarket shelves cleared, if you turn to sites like Amazon, for example, you might need to prepare for a shock. Third-party sellers aren't wasting their time pushing up prices. Ker Sebastian has been looking at some less-than-special offers around the market right now. Claire, talk us through what you've been seeing. I was looking at this yesterday, and there are some extortionate prices being charged by some of these sellers. Yeah, Julia, for, for simple products like hand sanitizers that, as you point out, are not available uh, in a lot of brick-and-mortar stores. Let me show you uh, a couple of the examples that we found. Uh, you know, a four-pack of, of Purell hand sanitizers selling on Amazon for $274.15. That was one of them. Uh, another one selling for $147.89. Now, I must make it clear, these are third-party sellers. This isn't Amazon doing it. And we have a statement from Amazon. They say, we are disappointed that bad actors are attempting to artificially raise prices on basic need products during a global health crisis. And in line with our long-standing policy, have recently blocked or removed tens of thousands of offers. We continue to actively monitor our store and remove offers that violate our policies. Now, neither of those two listings that we showed you, we have to be clear about that, neither of them are still there. So Amazon are clearly playing this sort of 24-hour game of whack-a-mole with these listings. They say they've removed more than a million uh, of these. But it, look, it is something that's happening. You can't buy these products elsewhere. We took 
took a look uh, for, for, the, for the sort of more, more normal retail price on Target. It retails uh, a bottle of Purell, something similar to, to this, for about two ninety nine. But it's out of stock. So you see how we've arrived at this situation. And this is pretty, putting pressure on the makers of Purell, a company called Gojo Industries. They told me, uh, and they've been tweeting to, uh, to a variety of concerned customers, uh, we have significantly increased production and are continuing to bring additional capacity online. As is typical, they say, in any supply chain where there is dramatic sudden increase in demand, we would expect to continue to see some outages while supply ramps up fully. I asked them how they feel about the price gouging that's going on online. They say uh, that they feel strongly that there is no place for price gouging, especially during times of elevated public health concerns. So a real sign uh, of the sort of fear that's out there, Julia. Yeah, I mean, we see this in uh, health crises all around the world, but pretty terrible, isn't it? Don't forget to take that bottle with you, Claire. It's worth more than gold, quite frankly. It's great to have you with us. Claire Sebastian there, thank you so much for that. All right, a quick look at markets. We are bouncing after a steep losses yesterday. Green for now. The question is, can we hold it? The Dow out of correction at Territory 2. If we can hold on to 2% more, no, we've slipped. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with more. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.